Mr. Trump appears to recognize that he has caused a little bit of a furor. A little bit of a what? Furor? A furor. Ah. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast. That's heard on 90.7 FM in L.A. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast. 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. And coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, Grateful Dread Public Radio in Nashville, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, altogether all, all fine chap, says me. Uh, welcome to your broadcast. Uh, we are not afraid. We are not frightened here. We'll leave that to apparently everyone else in this country, or at least everyone else in the Republican Party. Uh, amazing. Uh, some weapons-grade trolling from Donald Trump over the past 24 hours. Absolutely weapons-grade. And we will uh, let his uh, trolling uh, be a success here. We will let him sideline us for at least a few minutes today before we get to something that should be far, far more important and far more of the uh, discussion in the in the national media, in the international media right now, but for all of the oxygen being sucked out of the news cycle by Donald Trump and his call to ban all Muslims from entering the U.S. And that would include U.S. citizens, apparently, who, who are Muslim, make the mistake of leaving the country, and then they want to come home. Nope, can't do it under uh, Donald Trump's new plan. Like I say, it is some weapons-grade trolling and it's working big time it's even working here it's even working here to distract us uh it's also working in new hampshire by the way where his numbers have now ticked up he leads uh currently uh second place marco rubio now by a mile and uh yeah we'll be talking about uh, well we'll be talking about all of that as well today uh but that is why what donald trump has done is weapons grade trollage congratulations mr trump you got us. Joining us in a little bit here uh, will be Desi Doyen with our latest Green News report, you know, with stuff that actually really, truly does matter to things like the survival of the planet. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hey. I'm, I'm a big fan of survival of the species Are and you? the planet. Yeah. Okay. Just I count understand. me in on that. All right. I know it's in. going out on a limb. All right. You're in. Uh, because it is, of course, crunch time at uh, COP21, the Conference of Parties, the 21st Conference of Parties. For the UN Climate Change Framework for Peace or something. The what United is Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Worst name ever for a, a conference. Hey, they're bureaucrats uh, and diplomats. What do you, you want? What do you ask of them? Uh, also, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders has a 
has a proposal for a national carbon tax that is sure to freak everyone out. Um, <laughs> but we've also got some good news in our Green News report for a change. Uh, global greenhouse gas emissions have declined, have declined in 2015 for the first time. It's not the first time they've declined, but it's the first time that they've climbed, declined not due to a global economic recession. So that's good news. We'll find out why in our Green News report. And, oh, yes, yeah, speaking of survival of the planet and global warming, we'll be speaking uh, shortly here with Dr. Hugh Seeley of Grenada. We'll be talking to him uh, from Paris. He's at the conference. He's working with the small island nations at those climate talks, uh, helping to negotiate a deal that might keep some of those small island nations from disappearing into the ocean altogether as they work as a group to try and keep the globe from rising no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's 1.5. Everyone else is calling for uh, 2 degrees uh, centigrade as the as the temperature, as the maximum temperature that the, 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 the that we can rise, that the globe can uh, go up on average uh, and still remain livable according to the uh, scientific consensus. But that's a, that's a very conservative number, frankly, that, that two degrees. And many of these, uh, it, most people don't think we'll hit it. We think we'll go much higher than that. And yet these island nations, they'll be greatly affected by global warming, even if we keep the rise in temperatures to two degrees, which, of course, we won't. So we will check in with Dr. Seeley in Paris. They are calling for a 1.4 degrees rise, uh, 1.5 degrees rise, no more than that. We'll wish them luck. Uh, but anyway, we'll check with Dr. Seeley in Paris to see how the talks are going as they continue throughout this week and as we try to not get too sidetracked. <sighs> by Donald Trump's trolling. Uh, but first, a, a quick follow-up to our conversation yesterday with Cliff Schechter, uh, author and columnist Cliff Schechter, about our insane U.S. gun policy in the wake of all of these mass shootings and, uh, and the pretend claim by Republicans that they give a damn about terrorism, which, of course, they don't. They don't. If they did, they would close the terror gap, the terror gap that, the gap that allows... Anyone, even if you're on the terrorist watch list in this country, to go to a gun store and buy a gun. Even if you do get a background check and shows up you're on the terrorist watch list, enjoy your rifle. Or you could just, as Al-Qaeda has recommended, you could just go to a, a gun show and buy uh, all the assault rifles you want there without any background checks whatsoever. And the Republicans are in favor of that because the NRA is in favor of that and the NRA gives Republicans a lot of money. So they're all in favor of that, even though it supports and enables terrorists, suspected terrorists, and more. Uh, last week, the day after the shooting in San Bernardino, Republicans in the U.S. Senate blocked a, uh, a, an amendment by uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein that would have closed that terror gap. And now they have done it again. On Tuesday, Senator John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, blocked a Democratic push to pass legislation that would bar suspected terrorists from owning guns. According to The Hill, uh, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, sought unanimous consent to pass legislation by uh, uh, Senator Feinstein that would allow the attorney general to block known or suspected terrorists from buying a gun or explosives 
if they believe it will be tied to an act of terror. But no, the Republicans, they're against it. John Cornyn objected, adding that the Democrats were trying to create a gotcha moment that can be used against Republican senators. Well, yeah. Cornyn said, if these people on this government watch list are truly dangerous, why isn't the Obama administration and the Obama Justice Department indicting them? (laughs) Well, because they haven't done anything yet, but we're watching them. But apparently they're not dangerous, according to Senator Cornyn. We can uh, let them buy all the guns that they want. Only uh, one Republican, Senator Mark uh, Kirk of Illinois, who is up for re-election in a blue state this year. He's the only Republican to come on board supporting this measure when it came up last week and when it was put down by the Republicans at that point as well. So there you go. Uh, Minority Leader Harry Reid, a Democrat from Nevada, has meantime pledged to uh, repeatedly try to force a vote on Feinstein's legislation. And, of course, we know the Republicans will repeatedly stop it because they are in favor of of terrorists being able to buy guns. There you have it. All right. Um, Unbelievable. So, uh, listen, what would be, speaking of uh, uh, terrorists, uh, what would be a really, really good way to uh, help encourage Muslims who might not care, uh, might not like America that much, might want to harm America, might want to harm Americans, how to encourage them to want to do that even more? Oh, I've got it. We could force all American Muslims to register in a database the way that the Nazis did to Jews before World War II. Just as Donald Trump has called for and as many in his party have agreed we should do. Or we could shut down their mosques in this country entirely as Donald Trump has called for and as many in his party have agreed to do. Or, of course, uh, we could bar them from coming into this country altogether, as Trump has now called for and as many in his party are now agreeing we should do, even while they pretend some of them to be shocked, shocked by such a call. Concerned about Muslim hatred for uh, for the U.S., then uh, then why don't we do everything that ISIS would love us to do? Because that's the Trump plan. That's the Fox News plan. And I'm sorry to say that's the Republican Party plan. Now, uh, I'll get to the Republican Party in a moment and the high ranking people who, who support this stuff. But way there, way, way out on what used to be the fringes of the, the party. Uh, the white nationalist fringe, uh, they are praising Donald Trump's plan. They're, uh, they love it. They're calling it, quote, a tool, a, a, a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Uh, well, actually, that, I'm sorry, that's what Donald Trump is calling it. The white nationalists are calling it wonderful, 100% reasonable. Because Muslims, they say, purportedly provide, quote, absolutely nothing of value to this once great nation. And they've also praised Donald Trump as indispensable and an ultimate, quote, ultimate savior. For example, the Daily Stormer says, finally, someone speaks sense. The Daily Stormer is uh, named for prominent Nazi Julius Stryker's virulently anti-Semitic weekly newspaper called The Stormer. It's run by neo-Nazi Andrew Anglin. Anglin praised Donald Trump, saying, uh, why were these monkeys ever allowed in in the first place? What an insane, stupid concept. Finally, someone speaks sense. Get all of these monkeys the hell out of our country now. Heil Donald Trump, the ultimate savior. 
Anglin wrote that Trump's plan is 100% reasonable because Muslims, quote, provide absolutely nothing of value to this once great nation. Another anti-Semitic writer, Hunter Wallace, uh, says that uh, he's a board member for the white supremacist hate group called the Council of Conservative Citizens, where many Republicans have spoken over the years. Uh, He says Donald Trump's plan is great. He writes, in addition to the Trump database, this, barring all uh, Muslims from entering the country, should help Trump peel off a lot of Carson Cruz votes while sending the left into a new fit of PC rage that will generate free publicity through Iowa. That's great. We need to stop the damage the U.S. government is already doing to places like Minneapolis, St. Paul, Middle Tennessee with the refugee re-ettlement program. I think he means resettlement. It was revealed today that ISIS is targeting the refugee program to funnel terrorists into the U.S. No, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. But that's what this uh, uh, anti-Semitic Donald Trump lover says. Now, Donald Trump, speaking of PC, uses uh, PC all the time. Yesterday, he said when he was announcing his ban on all Muslims entering the U.S., he said, quote, I wrote something very salient and important and probably not politically correct, but I don't care. Now, what Donald Trump means when he says something isn't politically correct He means it's not constitutional and he doesn't care. So uh, and neither, by the way, do his supporters who pretend to give a damn about the Constitution. But, Brad, those are those are all just extremists. Those are right wingers. Those are Nazis and anti-Semites. Surely, surely they don't represent the Republican Party. Okay, fair enough. uh, A fair argument. Well, what about the Tea Party? Longview News Journal in Texas reports that uh, a speaker drew no distinction between the Islamic State, that's ISIS, and Muslims in America at Monday's meeting of the Longview Tea Party. Quote, the time of the Jews in America is rapidly ending, author and announced candidate for the Israeli Knesset, Dennis Avi Lipkin, told about 100 members of the We the People Longview Tea Party group in Texas. The Jews who will not the Jews who will not leave America will be killed by ISIS. He said this country's in big trouble. Fox News Network basically is the only channel that is saying this, he said. It's the only channel that is saying when is the president going to come out and call a spade a spade. Audience members at that Tea Party event included Republican candidates such as former mayor and Texas House of Representative hopeful uh, Jay Dean and Brian Hughes, a candidate for the Texas Senate. Lipkin said the plan is to make America a Muslim country. I'm a Jew who is telling you, you have to have a Christian revival. Israel's future is secured only if America is a Christian nation. So what do we have here? We've got right-wing Christians there with Trump, those Nazis. We've got right-wing Jews there with Trump. Basically, right-wingers, Republicans who watch Fox News are with Trump. But of course, yes, Brad, I know that's not the Republican Party. Those are crazy. Those are fringe extremists, right? Wrong. It's the party, stupid. Even if the media won't tell you, we will tell you. We will tell you. That's why uh, almost nobody, the, the corporate mainstream media won't say it, but we'll say it. It's why almost nobody but the Bradcast told you that Trump was for real from the jump. It wasn't a joke. We told you it wasn't a joke. We told you he represents everything the Republican Party has now come to stand for. And I think we have been proven right. 
He didn't get out of the race. He's soaring. We told you that they would love him, and they do. The media didn't see it. The corporate media didn't see it because forever they have treated the two parties as if they are equal and opposite sides of the same equation, which they are not. They are not. One party is worse than the other. And because uh, corporate media has given the GOP a pass, the GOP has in turn given their own people a pass, like these Tea Party stooges and dupes and suckers and haters, for example. So now the Republicans are pretending to be shocked, shocked by Trump's position, but they're not really shocked. They're just sorry that it's been seen across the media. And it's more than just Fox News. They used to only talk about this on Fox News. Now it's everywhere. So now the Republicans are feigning outrage uh, for the cameras. But they're, they're, they're cool with it. Look at Ted Cruz, for example. He's been pretending forever to be a defender of religious liberty. He, uh, he said he will never hesitate to defend religious liberty, both at home and abroad. He said in July of this year, I'll never shy away from defending the religious liberty of every American. In August, he said, never in the history of our nation have threats to our religious liberty been so great. In August, he said, we stand together today because if we lose our religious liberty, we lose every freedom in America. He said, if I'm president, I'll instruct every federal agency that the persecution of religious liberty ends today. We're a nation that was founded on religious liberty. Of course, he has refused to condemn Donald Trump. He says, oh, I don't think it's the right solution, but he would support Trump if he became the Republican presidential nominee. So he won't say, even though what Donald Trump is doing is a direct assault on religious liberty, the very definition of that assault, Ted Cruz won't do a damn thing about it. He's cool with it. Eh, you know, he's not, not what he would do, but he'll support the guy who does call for that for ending religious liberty as we've ever known it in this country. Ted Cruz is in favor of it. But Brad, Ted Cruz, he's, you know, he's also crazy. He's also a fringe right-winger. Never mind that he's sort of second place right now for the Republican nominee. He's sort of a right-winger. Well, what about Paul Ryan? Paul Ryan, he's the consensus candidate for speaker, uh, or was the consensus candidate for U.S. Speaker of the House. He was asked today about Donald Trump, and thankfully he sort of kind of condemned Donald Trump's plan. This is not conservatism. What was proposed yesterday is not what this party stands for. And more importantly, it's not what this country stands for. Well, there you go. Finally, finally a grown up who says this is not conservatism. This is not who we are as a party. Paul Ryan, U.S. House Speaker, finally a grown up. And then, of course, he was asked, well, hey, what if Donald Trump becomes uh, the nominee for president of the United States? Will you support him? In your role as speaker, you presided over the party's convention this summer. If Trump is the nominee, I'm going to support whoever the Republican nominee is, and I'm going to stand up for what I believe in as I do that. Thank you. So he's going to support whoever the Republican nominee is, even if that nominee wants to keep Muslims out of the country, including American uh, citizens who happen to be Muslims, who wants to shut down mosques, who wants to create a database of Muslims. That's not who we stand for, but I will support that guy as the standard bearer for this country, for his party, for the Republican Party. 
Well, close but no cigar. So who now do we have to turn to? Who now must we turn to for sanity? This is getting ridiculous. Dick Cheney was asked about uh, Donald Trump's proposal to keep all Muslims out of the country. I can't believe we have to go to Dick Cheney for common sense. Well, I think uh, this whole notion that somehow we can just say no more Muslims, just ban a whole religion, goes against everything we stand for and believe in. I mean, religious freedom has been a very important part of our our history and where we where it came from. So there you go. Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney uh, offers common sense. I can't believe we have to turn to Dick Cheney. Hey, Donald Trump, when you've lost Dick Cheney, well, good luck. Actually, he doesn't need my luck. Donald Trump is doing just fine. Uh, so there you go. Finally, something reasonable, Desi Doyen, from Dick Cheney. Are, are you impressed? <laughs> Man, that is... Yeah, that that I'm not happy about having to be on the same side as Dick Cheney. Unfortunately, well, it won't last. Trust me. Oh. Here's what Dick Cheney then went on to say. A lot of people here, my ancestors got here because they were Puritans. Um, there wasn't anybody here then when they came. But Oh, my. Nobody was there here? There was nobody here. <laughs> when his ancestors... Oh, oh, hello. Hello. I'm here. sorry. As a descendant of the Native Americans, the million or so people who were already here. Thank you very much, Dick Cheney. Your people were here. Oh, my God. Your people, the Cherokee uh, Nation, was here. Oh, yeah, we but, were here. But Dick Cheney, uh, nobody was here. Uh, of course, he went on uh, then to talk about how we need to keep Syrian refugees in some place in the desert. So, oh my God, that's least, just that's still I may I cannot I know, believe that. I know. So, well, at least you uh, would think uh, Dick Cheney we turn to for common sense. Uh, uh, we got a little bit from him, but in the very next breath, he ruined it all. So, who else can we go to? Who else? Where else can we find some common sense? And boy, do I hate to say this. Boy, do I hate to say this. We have talked about George W. Bush, who right after 9-11 came out many times describing Islam as peace. I can't believe we have to turn to George W. Bush in 2015 uh, for common sense. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, this was on September 17. I'm sorry, September, yeah, September 17, 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks, just days later, then-President uh, George W. Bush stood with Muslim leaders. He had a meeting, and he came out afterwards at an Islamic center to, uh, thankfully, I guess, uh, caution tolerance against our Muslim brethren. Like the good folks standing with me, the American people um, were appalled and outraged. Um, at last Tuesday's attacks, and so were Muslims all across the world. Both Americans, our Muslim friends and citizens, taxpaying citizens, and uh, Muslims and nations uh, were just appalled and could not believe uh, what, what we saw on our TV screens. These acts of violence against innocents violate the fundamental tenets of the Islamic faith. And it's important for my fellow Americans to understand that. The English translation is not as eloquent as the original Arabic, but let me quote from the Quran itself. In the long run, 
evil in the extreme will be the end of those who do evil. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. These terrorists don't represent peace. They represent evil and war. When we think of Islam, we think of a faith that brings comfort to a billion people around the world. Billions of people find comfort and solace and peace. And that's made brothers and sisters out of every race, out of every race. America counts millions of Muslims amongst our citizens. And Muslims make an incredibly valuable contribution to our country. Muslims are doctors, lawyers, law professors, members of the military, entrepreneurs, shopkeepers, moms and dads, and they need to be treated with respect. And our anger and emotion, our fellow Americans must treat each other with respect. Women who cover their heads in this country must feel comfortable going outside their homes. Moms who wear cover must not be intimidated in America. That's not the America I know. That's not the America I value. I've been told that some fear to leave. Some don't want to go shopping for their families. Some don't want to go about their ordinary daily routines because by wearing cover they're afraid they'll be intimidated. That should not and that will not stand in America. Those who feel like they can intimidate our fellow citizens to take out their anger don't represent the best of America. They represent the worst of humankind. And they should be ashamed of that kind of behavior. Now, this is a great country. It's a great country because we share the same values of respect and dignity and human worth. And it is my honor to be meeting with leaders who feel just the same way I do. They're outraged. They're sad. They love America just as much as I do. And I want to thank you all for giving me a chance to come by. And may God bless us all. Thank you. That was George W. Bush on September 17, 2001, speaking with Muslim leaders, offering remarks that are unimaginable today from the Republican Party, unimaginable today from leaders of the Republican Party. Thanks, Fox News. Thanks, Republicans. You've come a long way in 14 years, and Donald Trump... Damn you to hell for making me turn to George W. Bush as a voice of reason. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. 
You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. to hear this song usually welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com the tide is high oh boy and we are holding on uh i will explain in a moment we've been talking about cop 21 over the past week or so the 21st annual conference of parties the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change being held right now in Paris, being described as the the last chance to curb the rise in global temperatures. Now, we've been talking about this uh, conference for some time here in, in the lead up, uh, both, on, both on the broadcast here and, of course, on our Green News reports. Um, been talking about it, of course, from the U.S. perspective, uh, but also from the perspective of other nations who are party to this conference. And uh, last week, we had the largest gathering of world leaders in history in Paris for this conference. Those Many of those leaders have now left, but the, uh, the real work of the negotiations and the talks continue now. Uh, with the folks on the ground uh, left behind after the big fancy leaders have left. Uh, we've been talking about it, uh, as I say, from other perspectives. For example, last week we discussed both the French and Russian stakes in this agreement. But what of the uh, small island nations? There are some uh, 35 of them in the Pacific, the Atlantic, and the Indian Oceans that are really on the front of the front lines of rising oceans that could wipe out some of these uh, nations entirely, thanks to global warming, could wipe them off the map. Here to talk about that is Dr. Hugh Seeley. He's a professor in the Department of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at St. George's University in Grenada and an energy policy advisor to the government of Grenada. He is a climate science expert with more than 25 years of experience as a project manager, a professional engineer, and an environmental science scientist. And uh, the United Nations Development Program has appointed Dr. Seeley as a consultant for these talks and asked that he create a guidance manual to, uh, to provide climate change negotiators in small island developing states with the information and tools to adequately represent their constituencies during these international negotiations. Dr. Hugh Seeley joins us right now from Paris to talk about how things are going. Dr. Hugh Seeley, welcome to the broadcast, sir. 
Thank you very much, Brad. Pleasure to be here. Uh, great to have you. All right. At these uh, climate talks, the UN talks in Paris right now, the uh, the main goal, as I understand it, is uh, to, to find, to negotiate an agreement that would cut greenhouse gas emissions worldwide, limit global temperatures from rising beyond two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times by the end of this century. But you... And the group of small island nations are lobbying for a much more uh, strict target, one and a half degrees Celsius. And that's, frankly, a tough ask, it seems, given that we're already now, I think, already at one degree Celsius above pre-industrial time. So why do you and these nations seek that lower target of 1.5 degrees? It's quite simple. Two degrees is too much. We need 1.5 to stay alive. You're absolutely correct, Brad, that we've already at one degree of warming, and we are already starting to see the effects of one degree uh, where I live, which is in Grenada in the, in, in the Caribbean. We are already experiencing sea level rise of around three millimeters per year, and that sea level rise is accelerating. We are already locked into about one meter of sea level rise by the end of this century. We are already starting to see warming. We are already starting to see extreme weather events. And our scientists are telling us that we will not survive at 2 degrees. When you compare 2 degrees to 1.5, it may not sound like a big difference, but the, actually the atmospheric concentrations of CO2 are, are, are different. It means that the, the oceans, in terms of their pH, will be different. And you may, you may know that the oceans are starting to get more acidic. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, big problem for us in, on, on, on any islands that have coral reefs. It means that the coral reefs will disappear. So, quite frankly, Brad, two degrees is just too much. What, what does it mean when we talk about uh, the acidic oceans? Because I know a lot of, you know, we talk about rising oceans, we talk about rising temperatures, but as you mentioned, uh, uh, Dr. Seeley, the acidic, uh, the acidification well, of these oceans. Well, that carbon dioxide that we're, that we're spewing out by, by combusting all these fossil fuels has to go somewhere. And when, it, when it's absorbed into the ocean's waters, it turns into what's called carbonic acid. And so it's actually making the oceans more acidic. So anything that's calciferous, anything that, that has calcium in, it, in its shells, and that's coral reefs, that's lobster, that's, that's uh, anything with a, with a, with a shell, it's gonna, that shell is going to actually dissolve. And, and that's really, really bad news. And, and well, that is bad news, obviously, for those lobsters and those uh, creatures with shells. But what's the direct impact on the small island nations? Are these nations that we're talking about that well, have a fishing that economy? You're a small island that, imagine that you're a small island that's surrounded by coral reefs. Mm-hmm. And those coral reefs are, are, are what's nourishing your beaches. And imagine that your, your whole economy is based on tourism, which is based on having those beaches. And you're going to lose those beaches because you're going to lose your coral reefs. Therefore, you're going to lose your tourism. Therefore, you're going to, you're going to lose your main livelihood. Mm. And is it those coral reefs that essentially keep those beaches uh, usable for tourism? Without we lose those uh, reefs, and they begin the beaches themselves begin to erode. Exactly. The, the, the coral reefs not only provide mechanical protection to the to the shoreline in terms of, of stopping the wave energy. The coral reefs are actually the source of the sand that makes those lovely white 
mm. sand beaches that you want to come and visit. Yes, I do. Uh, and I would hate to lose that. Uh, so are you saying that, uh, well, as the uh, working with the small island nations group, what, what exactly is that group? I described it loosely as about 35 uh, uh, nations, but are they negotiating? We were, there. We were about I'm we're, sorry, we're look, 44 islands. 44, okay. Uh, we're 40, well, 44 islands and low-lying states. Uh, within the Caribbean, within the Pacific Ocean, and the Indian Ocean. And we've all grouped together uh, as, as the Alliance of Small Island States mm-hmm. to, to negotiate as a block. So mm-hmm. out of the 196 countries that are negotiating here, mm-hmm. I represent 44 of them as a small island. So we may be small in, in terms of population, but in, and in this system in the UN, it's one country, one vote. So we make up 44 votes out of the 196, which is... Uh, quite a strong contingent so we do have a voice here yeah you do and uh, well uh, how's it going are the larger nations uh, the, the both developing and not developed are they hearing your voice are they hearing your concerns i think they are brad we've we've entered this week uh an interesting stage of the negotiations this is where the ministers take over you you were quite right that the heads of state uh were here last week and they they left but now their ministers of environment are here. Mm-hmm. And they have taken over the negotiations along with the president of the COP. Now, the president of the, of the, of the COP is the, the French minister of environment. Mm-hmm. And what we see happening is that we've entered a stage of, of intense bilaterals right now with all of the countries. We expect that a new text will be issued on Wednesday that we will then negotiate again. And then by Friday, we have to wrap this up to allow our legal teams to be able to convert this text into into the six languages of the UN, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't want to sound melodramatic, but in my mind, we've got four days left to save this world. Mm-hmm. Well, that that is dramatic, but I, I think it's appropriate here. I mean, we're talking, you, you mentioned, of course, losing the tourism, losing uh, concerns about the fishing industry, but in some of these cases, some of these nations are facing literally extinction, being wiped off the map, as I understand it, with a rise of, you know, projected six feet uh, sea level rise by 2100. I mean, is there a way to survive in that case, or is this just a matter of some of these islands are are going to have to just get out, mass migrations, uh, you know, you know, to other other nations? No, you're 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 right. We we represent uh, a group of of countries for which climate change is is an existential threat. This is not something that's an economic issue for us. This is an existential issue for right. us. So our, our, our backs are literally against the wall on, on, on this one, and therefore we will fight for our existence. We will fight for 1.5 to be anchored uh, in, that, in, the, in the agreement. Two degrees is just too much for us. Now, some countries, the richer countries, are saying, well, it's going to be too difficult. It's going to be too economically difficult for us to reach, uh, reach 1.5 degrees, and we can keep it below two. My, my, my response to them is, is, is the small islands are the canaries in the coal mine. If we go down, you're going to go down as well. Mm. And, and, and when we have to migrate, where are we going to go? If I if I if I live in the Caribbean and I have and I have to migrate, are you going to give me a piece of land somewhere in in in, in Florida or the southern United States? If well, you if you think the Syrian refugee crisis is bad now and the, and 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 the and the, the the problems that 
that the Europe is having to deal with with, with migration. Imagine if all the low-lying areas in the world had to migrate. And it's not only the small islands. The majority of the world's population lives on a coastline. And all of those areas will be, will be displaced. We did a, we did a study that we looked at the, at the, the vulnerability of our infrastructure, mm-hmm. or airports, or seaports, or, or multi-million dollar resorts, or hotels. And we found that we would lose the majority of them. Wow. At one meter and at two meters of sea level rise. And the, and the, and it gets absolutely catastrophic if we lose the Greenland, uh, ice sheets and, 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 and West Antarctica. And, and under those circumstances, you're, you're talking about sea level rise in, in, in excess of five meters going towards seven meters. And that's, that's almost unimaginable. It, it, well, Unfortunately, we, we better start imagining it, at least if we listen to, to scientists who, who are telling us, you know, that even if we come out with what many are regarding as a, frankly, a best case scenario, that an agreement that will keep us to two or even two and a half degrees uh, above uh, Celsius, above pre-industrial times, that we that still may not uh, be nearly enough. And that's why I know you're calling for 1.5 but uh, degrees and it's not, it's not only us, Brad. Yeah. Not, there, there, was, there was a scientific review that was done. Uh, it was called the Structured Expert Dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they looked at all the latest science, and they clearly, clearly said, two degrees is not a safe guardrail. Do not go to two degrees. Right. Keep it well below two degrees. So it's not only us in the small islands that are clamoring for, for 1.5. We have an alliance of over 100 countries out of the 196 that are insistent that we have to keep this warming below 1.5, well below 1.5. What could you, Dr. Seeley, if you were in charge of, of this agreement, what would you say is needed for these 44 island nations that we need to get into this agreement right now? What, what practical uh, steps can be taken? What measures should be included in this agreement if you were, if you were king of the climate talks? If I was king of the climate talks, yes. I would turn, I would turn the agreement around right now into into something that's more top down than bottom up. But let me let me explain that. Okay. Right now, we're we're going for what we call intended nationally determined contributions. Each country is voluntarily putting forward its targets as to how it intends to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. Under that voluntary system. All of us have submitted these these INDCs, and when you add up the the aggregate effect of these INDCs, we're we're still heading towards warming of around 2.7 to 3.5 degrees. Right. So if I was king of the conference, I would put down a an edict. I would divide up the carbon budget amongst all of us. I would tell each country what it has to do, and I would insist that we hit a target of 1.5. Now, could I get that done as, as the king? Yes, but under this, under this democratic system that we have, and, and under this particular convention, we have to reach consensus. We have to, every country has to agree. And that's very, very difficult for us when you deal with 196 countries with a lot, a lot of vested interest. It seems like a tall order. Is there, aside from uh, commitments to uh, curbing emissions from all of these countries, is there a specific thing that island nations need? Do you guys need money for, for mitigation, for development? What What is it that you w- would add in, uh, again, as king of climate talks? What, well, what would you I, add I, in? I have, 
I'm yeah. glad that you that you mentioned that. I think there there's three key things for small islands that we would walk away from from Paris saying that we have an effective agreement. Agreement. One is mitigation. Mitigation targets or mitigation ambition on the part of all countries that, that we know will leave no island behind. And I've already already said what what I would do if I was I was the king on, in terms mm-hmm. of mitigation. So if it's if it's going to be voluntary. Let's all increase our ambition. Let the U.S. increase its ambition. Let China increase its ambition. Let India, let the European Union, et cetera, et cetera. And let's get to a point where I'm comfortable that my grandchildren will have a place to live. On the finance side, we know that we're going to have to adapt to climate change, even if we mitigate. We know that there are some impacts of climate change that are inevitable. So we're going to need the finance to adapt. We're going to have to build sea defenses. We're going to have to relocate some of our infrastructure. We're going to need assistance to do that. And, and even on the mitigation side, for us as small islands, although we have not caused the problem, we think that morally we should contribute towards the solution. So give us some help so that we can convert our economies from what from fossil fuel-based to renewable energy-based. That would, that would help transform our economies. And then the third thing and the last thing is something called loss and damage. Now, loss and damage is a concept that takes us beyond adaptation. What we are arguing is that there is there are some impacts of climate change that we cannot simply adapt to. It's just too difficult for us to adapt to. Things like sea level rise, for example. And therefore, we want to get some finance, some insurance mechanism in there for what we call loss and damage. So, three things. Loss and damage being separate to adaptation and finance for that. Adequate finance so that we can adapt and adequate finance so that we can convert our own economies to, to green economies. And then the most important thing in my mind, global, a global mitigation effort that will guarantee us survival. And are we anywhere near? Do the other states, uh, the other countries, understand those needs? Uh, and is there any chance that we, we get something that speaks to those concerns by the end of this conference? Or is it a matter of getting a framework in place and then continuing to improve uh, as we move forward, as you see it? I think, again, you fit, you fit the nail on the head there. I don't, I don't think that we will sign an agreement here in Paris that will guarantee me all three things. Mm-hmm. What I do hope is that we will sign something here in Paris that will, that will give us a trajectory, give us a pathway so that we can achieve these things in future decisions. So as I, as I said, we, are, we, we have reduced our, our mitigation or our trajectory on emissions from going over 4 degrees now to around 2.7, 3.5 with these uh, contributions, voluntary contributions that countries have made. That's okay. That's, we consider that a starting point. What we would like to build into the agreement is some form of ratcheting up mechanism, some form of, 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 of cycles of review of these contributions, say every five years, mm-hmm. so that countries, every five years, they come back to the table. They can't backslide. They have to put something more ambitious on the table. If we can get that in the, in the Paris Agreement, we'd be satisfied with that. On the finance, the developed countries have promised us $100 billion per year by 2020 as a floor. We haven't seen any of that money yet. Mm. But if there, if there can be some sort of guarantee that there will be a, a, a concrete pathway to build up that finance, then yes, we will be satisfied. And if we can see the words loss and damage and a mechanism 
that that deals with loss and damage separate and distinct a separate and distinct article in the agreement on loss and damage we would be satisfied I'm uh, speaking with Dr. Hugh Seeley. He's uh, serving as a consultant uh, to the uh, small island nations uh, who are working as a group at the uh, COP21 uh, Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in Paris. Uh, Dr. Seeley, I've got just a minute or two here, uh, but what what do people, I just want to get your sense of a couple of uh, points here. What What do the people of Grenada and uh, from where you you come from and uh, and the other island nations that you help represent uh, what do they think when they watch politicians in this country in the US mainly Republicans mocking climate change saying either it's not happening or if it is happening it's it's a, just a natural cycle there's nothing we can do about it you guys are on the front lines you guys are seeing literally the effects of this every day with the you know acidification of the oceans with the rising uh, sea levels with st- increased storms hurricanes and so forth uh, are, are there climate ch- is there a climate change denial community in grenada no there is there is no climate change denial community in in, in grenada Quite frankly, Brad, I have no time for climate skeptics. The, those those that deny that climate change is occurring, I, it, it gives me a sense of despair. I, I suspect it does. I share your despair, uh, Doctor. Uh, w- one more uh, question here before we, we get out. Uh, the Sierra Club here in the U.S. put out a statement last week. Uh, they're concerned about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the effect that that might have on climate change itself, um, uh, that it would empower fossil fuel corporations you know, to expand uh, via these tribunals. They don't even talk about the word climate change in the TPP. Uh, and I don't know if, if Grenada or any of the nations you represent are a party to that TPP, but is there a concern about the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, that you see among these nations and how it plays into the agreement in Paris? No, that has not come up specifically. What, what, what we are concerned about is that, is that uh, there is no doubt that we have to decarbonize our economies. I'm sorry for using such a technical term. That's okay. In simple terms, we've got to stop burning fossil fuels. Started with coal, then move into oil, then, then move into natural gas. Now, this global economy of ours is around, what, 60 to $70 trillion. Mm-hmm. And we've got to take about, I don't know, $15 trillion out of the economy in terms of oil, coal, and gas. Now, how do we do that without collapsing the world's economy? And that's a very, very, very big issue. So we recognize that, that oil or fossil fuels is, is totally entwined in our in our economies right now, and it's not going to be a simple matter to decarbonize our economies, but we have to do it. I'm calling it a global Marshall Plan. Do you remember mm. after the Second World War, the, the, we had the Marshall Plan for Europe. I'm yeah. saying we need that type of plan for the world. We mm. need to be able to tell the OPEC countries you can stop producing fossil fuels. This is how we're going to we're, this is how we're going to salvage your economies. You need to tell the folks in the U.S. That, that are now into fracking and natural gas. You've got to stop this. We've got to switch. We've got to switch to green energy. Uh, there's a myth out there, a total, total myth, that the American way of life is going to be lost if we don't have fossil fuels anymore, if we don't have coal anymore. And what, 
what the latest reports are saying is that is not true. Mm-hmm. You can transform your economies. You can switch to greener, more sustainable sources of energy and maintain your quality of life. Well, we, we can and we must. I guess the question is uh, how quickly the, the uh, well the, the people in our country realize that and the, the rest of the world realizes that because I think at some point we're not going to have a choice. We don't get to have the luxury of negotiations. We're going to simply have to do it if, uh, if the scientists that I talk to are correct and the scientists that uh, and you and, and those you talk to are correct. Dr. Hugh Seeley, uh, really appreciate your... Your thoughts here, your input, your work in uh, in Paris, and uh, I hope we can stay in touch as uh, the agreement moves forward and as the, the next phase of this uh, framework continues, because I, I suspect this is going to be a long fight for, for you ahead, sir. Thank you for having me on the show, and keep spreading the message, Brad. Thank you, sir. Dr. Hugh Seeley, he is a professor in the Department of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at St. George's University in Grenada and an energy policy advisor to the government there, as well as a consultant uh, to the United Nations Development uh, Program and the negotiations, the climate negotiations currently ongoing in Paris. We're going to take a quick break and we will be back with more broadcast right after this. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I know I promised at the uh, at the top of the show that we would have our latest Green News report, but Desi Doyen, bad news. I know. Bad news. I know. Blame Donald Trump. I blame Donald Trump you and should. Dick Cheney and Paul Ryan. Blame them all. I do. Blame them all. I'm sorry about Will. We'll uh, run our uh, latest Green News report tomorrow with the latest from Paris. Although, you know, we had a good report there from uh, from Dr. Seeley, I think. So oh, yeah. we got some uh, we got something and I'll make up for it with the story that I've been trying to get to actually for the longest time from Echo Watch uh, for uh, the last several weeks. This report that came out from the International Energy Agency finding uh, this came out right before the uh, the, the COP21 climate conference in uh, in Paris that um there is an energy, a big energy transition underway, and which we know. Yes. But here's some numbers we didn't. Renewables, renewable energy will overtake coal as the world's largest power source. Renewables contributed almost half of the world's new power generation capacity in 2014. And renewables have already become the second largest source of electricity in the, in the world. After coal, coal is still number one, old king coal. The report also found renewables are set to become the leading source of new energy supply from now until 2040 and will overtake coal as the largest source of electricity generation by the 2030s. Now, what's interesting about this is that the International Energy Agency, which is a private organization, mm-hmm. but it is affiliated with the United Nations, and it does, it's, it, it, it gets global data on energy. They mm-hmm. are notoriously wrong really? in their projections about renewable energy. In fact, back, I think, like last... Uh, so like will they th- be wrong here? No, what's, what's shocking about this is that finally, after decades, mm-hmm. literally decades, of under 
under projecting the mm-hmm. growth of renewables. I mean, back in 2009, they were like, yeah, renewables will only be 2 or 3% at tops. You know, it'll never be anything. <laughs> it won't happen. And now suddenly, this year, for the first time ever, the IEA says that renewables are going to take over. Now, if they're notoriously low on their projections, notoriously conservative mm-hmm. on their projections, then I think this bodes pretty well for renewable energy and the renewable energy sector, because if they're really low in the past and, and they always underplay it, then I, I think we, this is a good sign. Renewable, they go on to say, I, I hope you're right, uh, renewables, r- renewables-based generation reaches 50% in the European Union by 2040, around 30% in China and Japan, and above 25%. In the U.S. and uh, and India, according to these estimates from the IEA, and you say they always under underplay uh, it, uh, yeah, undercall it. Um, this has uh, rapidly helped uh, helped emissions to slow quote dramatically, according to the IEA, and maybe that has uh, explains what is in our Green News report when we let people hear it <laughs> uh, th- that emissions are down for the first time not due to a global economic uh, crisis. Right. In the past, whenever uh, emissions have dropped, global emissions Mm -hmm. have dropped, it's always been in conjunction with an economic downturn. Um, You know, and this this latest report, it'll be see if it it actually holds. It's a very slight decline, but if it is the inflection point, this is extremely good news. The IEA warns, however, that, quote, a major course correction is still required to keep warming below the two degrees Celsius target that much of the world has. Uh, if not for the small island nations who'd like to keep it to 1.5 degrees. And they're absolutely right about that. Uh, and uh, Greenpeace, uh, unlike the IEA, who ha- is not quite as conservative, they have outlined a path for the world to transition to 100% renewable energy by 2050. Greenpeace, of all of the mm-hmm. organizations that predict energy usage and energy trends over time, Greenpeace is always the most accurate. They have been right. They have been right way more often, actually completely more often than the IEA. So they say 100% renewable by 2050? They've been right uh, that we can do it. They've been right in the past, and so I'll I'll trust that they are right, that we can do it, that we can go 100% renewable by 2050. Electricity. Uh, right. Uh, and that was a report that they put out in September. We, we did cover that, as I recall, yes. at the time on the GNR. Um, A spokesman for uh, a global energy strategist at Greenpeace International says the impossible is becoming possible. The global breakthrough of renewable energy has happened much faster than anticipated, according to Emily Rochon. The IEA is just now catching up, as is what you pointed out, Desi, is just now catching up on the renewable energy trends, she says. But it is still failing to see that the full, still failing to see the full potential of change, according to Rashan. We believe at Greenpeace that the right level of policy support, that with the right level of policy support, the world can deliver 100% renewable energy for all by 2050. From your mouth to the Paris Climate Talks ears, <laughs> something like that. Uh, thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and of course to Dr. Hugh Seeley for joining us tonight from Paris. My thanks as ever to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Also, my thanks to those of us who have stopped by bradblog.com donate. 
to help keep us on the air and bad-mouthing anyone we want without uh, without any punishment whatsoever. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where I hope you will give us a good review, make it easier for other people to find the Bradcast. And follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where you can badmouth me all you want. I am the Brad Blog. All right, that's it. Until next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.